0: Man
1: is a history-making creature who can neither repeat his past nor leave it behind. W.H. Auden Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I am your host. I'd like to thank everyone who's been listening, uh, and uh, any newcomers, welcome. I hope you enjoy. Um, And, uh, yeah, let's go ahead and dive on into it. This episode... It's probably going to be a little bit shorter, uh, in terms of length, um, spe- especially compared to last week's episode, which ran a lot longer than I thought it would, but I am, uh, I'm recovering from a very, uh, fun, but also very long, uh, weekend where some friends of mine got married in town. there have been a lot of festivities and, uh, partying, uh, going on, so I am, uh, very tired, And uh, I need to recover. But um, I will try to do my best and get at least a decent uh, number of things covered. Um, And so to do that, um, we're going to kind of go over what we will be discussing. Um, And for that, we're going to be talking about a few other sites and peoples living in what is now modern Pakistan before we move into... Uh, sites in what is now modern India. Uh, so, um, but before we start with that, though, I do need uh, to go over some feedback and uh, a point that I wanted to clarify from, so- from something I had said last time. So, um, the clarification uh, is, uh, is, is to talk about the possible adaptation of crops from the West, um, I should have emphasized that the reason for the potential adaptation of these strains would have been mostly related to the amount of usable grain these stocks would provide. Um, I made it sound like that they'd probably they might have been better suited to the environment um, and that's that may have been true um, but I think any kind of adoption would have been more due to volume of food as opposed to um I guess climate suitability, um, though it's possible that both was the case. Also, I read a very interesting article, and I forget the gentleman's name, uh, but I will be talking about it when I do our next um, domestication episode, where we talk about the kind of the next run of crops that have been uh, kind of uh, domesticated and are being added to. Uh, I guess the human equipment list um and he had he was part of a project that like uh, mathematically broke down a lot of um wild and semi-domesticated vegetation that had been found in some of these sites that we've been talking about and it kind of broke down mathematically the percentage of what crops were used and what were not And it's kind of thrown a really big um, kind of counter argument to uh, the so-called founder crops uh, that has kind of been the, the, I guess, the norm or the accepted meta, for lack of a better term, of um, human um, agricultural adoption. And I'm going to be talking about that, but it was a very interesting article and I I wrote down the name, but I forgot to add it to my notes and I, unfortunately, uh, I don't have where I wrote it down, available at the moment. So, But it's something we will discuss. Um, now, as for the feedback I got, I would like to thank our listener, Ram, for linking me a couple of examples of armies using the Bolan Pass for invasions into and out of India. I'm looking forward to researching and talking about them, uh, even though it may take a little while to get to them. And, uh, Ram, do I do thank you, and I, I know that we've messaged since this bit of feedback, but um, I hope you continue to listen and enjoy. Um, now, though, I would like to talk about some of the other sites uh, that, um, or sites and peoples that can be dated to around this time frame in this area and who the peoples we have and are going to talk about may have been. So we've talked previously about Homo sapiens reaching India fairly quickly, uh, fairly quickly after leaving Africa, and there are a number of sites that these early pioneers flocked to. Um, several of them are located in the uh, Shivalik Hills, which are the outer foothills of the Himalayas, kind of where they meet the Indian subcontinent. Uh, these run from kind of the headwaters of the Indus in what is now Pakistan, and they run all the way across northern India and Nepal, almost right up to the Brahmaputra River in the east, so uh, right on that uh, Bangladesh border with India. And the rock shelters and caves were in use by other hominids who had left Africa for this region as well. Uh, The oldest evidence, I believe, of Homo erectus outside of Africa has been found in this range. Um, And these were valuable locations when it comes to gathering materials for tools. Um, And this gave rise to a tool culture known as the Sonian, uh, which gets its name from the Son River Valley of Pakistan. Uh, where the tool types were first uncovered. And then later similar sites were found you know all along the range. Um, now this culture is controversial, and there are those that argue that it shouldn't actually be classified as a distinct tool culture. And this is due to a lot of different factors. and even though uh, or even those that say it did exist argue heavily on the dates of when it did exist. But the absolute latest it would have existed was right at the end of the Younger Dryas period. So uh, kind of at the start of our timeline or right before our timeline or our current focus on the timeline ended. Um, however, even after this period, there are a number of artifacts that suggest the Sone River Valley site remained in use by whatever peoples broke away or evolved from the Sonian. Um, now, whether this could be considered a true, a true tool, tool culture or not. Um, and this is kind of more, again, on the anthropology-archaeological side, and it's well, um, well beyond kind of the focus of what we're going to be doing here at this time frame. And, you know, I, I don't know enough about tool culture, to really speak too high, heavily and weigh in on my opinion on this, but uh, just keep in mind that that is something that has been debated. Um, so the Sone River Valley site remains in use even after the other She Valak hill sites are abandoned as habitation or camping sites. Um, this is probably due to uh, the Sone being an easy access point to the rest of the Shivalik Hills. Uh, the ground around the river is fertile, but it's also very rocky, which means it's never going to become a massive site. Um, people living there continuing continue to mostly rely on uh, gathering, fishing, and hunting uh, while they use the various varieties of nearby stone for tools, uh, tools uh, trinkets, trade, what have you. And the reason this probably remained in use is because it was an excellent location to enter into and out of the Shivalik range. It makes it an excellent hub for travel. Um, also, uh, the name uh, of the hills means Shiva's Tresses. And this is true for all of the, I guess, all of the different um, groups, language families that live In the hills or nearby the hills, Um, they all have some version of the name Shiva attached to this little mountain range. Um, Now, I couldn't get a firm etymology of the the Sone. I've read some sources that call it the Swan, but that seems to be an English corruption and not actually tied to the name in Urdu. And th- because that just means a hundred, a uh, hundred what, I couldn't get any, you know, theories, um, on what it meant. Uh, but basically the, the English who came to the area, they heard, uh, "son" and thought swan. So they would refer to it sometimes as swan, um, not realizing that, you know, it was something else or some did obviously, but then there was some that you know they just type they just wrote down what they what they heard, which is how you get a number of names for rivers in other places of the world. This is not the only place that's happened. Um, let's see. Uh, now there are another number of other sites uh, that begin to see increasing use at this time, uh, but the you, they're not yet practicing a domesticated. Lifestyle, you know, farming or herding or anything like that. And they remain relatively small. Um, However, by the time we return to this region, a number of people living at these locations will start and then fully adopt an agricultural lifestyle. Uh, Some sites and the people's living there will eventually belong to what is known as the Harappan or Indus Valley Civilization while others remain on the periphery of that system in small isolated villages or as part of those who prefer the mobile hunter or pastoralist lifestyles. Some of these sites are uh, Timar- uh, Timargar, uh, Rana Guhan, uh, Gundhai, and Anjira, and there are many, many others. Uh, we will talk about some of these as they become more settlements or larger settlements uh, in our later episodes Um, for now though uh, we're going to go ahead and cross the modern day border and talk about some of these early settlements in modern india and the best place to start with that is the site of birana this site was first excavated between 2003 and 2006 and the dates on this site uh, are debated uh, at least the start of the site. Um, but the signs of continuous sedentary, you know, proto agricultural lifestyle being practiced lines up very closely with Marigar, uh, with Birana possibly being slightly older and lasting to around uh, the same time frame as when Marigar is abandoned. Um, the date ranges given are either you know, depending on the source, 7,500 or 7,000 BCE, up until around 2,600 BCE. Uh, The name is related to the Hindi word for crowd, which, you know, a fitting name for an early city, I expect. Um, But as obviously we don't know what the settlement would have been called by the people living there. Uh, and it is located in the modern Hin- Indian state of Haryana. Uh, now, despite the shared antiquity of uh, both Maragar and uh, Birana, um, these sites um, are about as far away from each other as Gobekli Tepe and Catalhoyok, give or take uh, 40 kilometers. So you could easily expect for there to be Differences between the two sites, uh, just as there were, you know, plenty of differences between Göbekli Tepe and Catalhoyuk, and you would be right. And these will last until even after uh, the Harappan period begins. Uh, to start, Birhana's homes appear to have been uh, semi-subterranean, with floors being dug down into the earth, and in contrast with Marigar's you know, squared quartered homes, uh, Beirana's homes also appear to have been plastered, similar to the way some homes on Cyprus had been with limestone, uh, they, instead instead of using limestone, they use kind of this yellow alluvium, uh, from a nearby, uh, river, uh, the, uh, Gahagar river, um, and this, uh, this river is very interesting, it is a, uh, kind of a seasonal river, it, it is not fully flowing all year. It's mainly um, picks up and becomes a a true river after you know seasonal rains and snow melts and things like that. Uh, and its course is one that has um, shifted wildly through the years because again, it's it's not a permanent river. Um, and this is one of the rivers that is kind of like a um, put forward as the as the again the um, the Sarasvati River, um, which is a little mysterious and one of the big archaeological mysteries and historical and mythological mysteries in Indian history, um, there are a number of candidates for the Sarasvati, and Gara, uh the Garagara Gara River is but one of those, um, uh, I guess suspects for lack of a better term. But um, we'll dive well into that stuff much later, um, but, uh, the, one of the individuals who found and excavated, uh, Birana has a number of theories about the site, uh, and he links it to a culture known as the Hakra Ware culture, and this is kind of a, um, this is a culture that was considered contemporaneous with the later Harappan culture. Um, but he seems to draw that this may have been, I guess, the proto for what will become the hakra culture. Or, at the very least, um, he claims that it is, it shows that the hakra ware culture uh, began before the harappan culture did and they were not necessarily uh well they were obviously contemporaneous but the the hakraware culture is is slightly older and that the um that they influenced the harappan culture and in some places places uh may have evolved into the harappan culture um but that's stuff that we'll, we'll again get into a little bit more detail later because uh, that is not happening at this at this point in our timeline. Um, this is just right now Birhana is a place that is again an early adapter of large scale organized agriculture and like permanent settlement ta- uh settlements and um, it will probably not begin to see um, the horoware emerge until. Probably about five thousand, maybe a little bit later uh, BCE. Though pottery, I believe, does show up at the very end of our timeline here, right at six thousand BC BCE. Um, but it does not have the distinctive uh, Hakra ware, I guess, um, style or aesthetics. Um, but yeah, so and there are, um, there are some other sites um, that we will dive into uh, next time that are, you know, again, they're, they're like those other sites in uh, Pakistan that we mentioned. They're not quite at the point where they're adapting agriculture, at least fully, and there's still evidence of, you know, seasonal or, you know, semi-seasonal migration. Um, But we, again, we're seeing these places that had been, you know, rock shelters, uh, you know, sanctuaries essentially for these earlier uh, hunter-gatherer groups begin to be used by people, um, you know, adapting a different lifestyle, but they're well-suited to, again, uh, agriculture. Uh, so the, you're beginning to see more of these sites slowly begin that process of uh, urbanization, which um, obviously I, I I think I've mentioned this before and I've used the term sparingly or tried to, um, but it is, it is a slightly different sense of urbanization uh, at that time than what we think of it when we would think of that term now. Um, but... As you can guess from the long uh, history of this site, uh, much like Marigarh, we will be returning to Birana uh, in the future. Um, Now, next week, uh, we're going to talk about some of the other sites, kind of in this northern part, uh, or I should say northeastern part of what is, or I'm sorry, northwestern part of what is now India. Uh, Next week... um, I think we'll go a little bit further west but we're going to remain kind of in the northern area of India along the Ganges uh river uh basin and uh we might move a little bit into Bangladesh before we return I guess to southern India. I need to I need to check my sources and my notes and just see um which episode I could probably do a little bit um do a little bit longer on, because I tend not to like to have short episodes back-to-back, um, but I do, there is one other thing I want to talk about in this week's episode, and it would apply to a number of sites, Oh well, it would apply to virtually, you know, the sites in the next episode as well, uh, the ones in the Ganges Delta, and the ones further to the south in, um, the i guess uh the deccan region of uh, southern india sri lanka and all that kind of stuff um but that would be the question of language um now i haven't really talked too much about um languages the last couple of episodes mainly because it's very hard to know because i feel like the languages spoken at that time uh there's a lot of missing information uh, and it will becomes uh, there will be more, uh, I guess appropriate places to focus on that in the future. However, India is a very special case. Um, and I think probably the uh, I think it's a safe assumption based on everything we have right now. And we'll get into this a lot more uh, in the future as well, because this this is something that is you know going to take a lot of discussion. Um, but I, there are some factors in this discussion that I, I'm not going to dive in too much later, but uh, because we're missing a lot of context, and I want to add that context uh, as we progress, and not just kind of just dump it all out and then just completely ignore it. Uh, for another season or two, and then come back to it later. Um, but my guess is, and I think this is something that's a, a fairly popular theory, um, is that the peoples living in the areas we've talked about for the last two or three episodes, possibly even four, we're speaking kind of a a, a proto Dravidic language. Um, now, Dravidian is a uh, language family. Uh, it's one of the uh, big language families in the world. Um, there are over, I believe, 200... and I want to say it's like 275 million people um, speak a Dravidic language. Um, and they are mostly situated uh, at least these days in, uh, central, uh, and Southern India, but there are places that still speak a Dravidic language in Pakistan, um, and in the, uh, North, uh, East of India. And I believe that there are a couple of small, uh, groups in kind of, uh, the Indian, um, Pakistan border region as well. Um, And those are, you know, uh, they're all divided now. Um, It's been divided into uh, kind of subdivisions. You have the northern, the central, the south-central, and the southern uh, families. Um, A modern uh, Dravidic language uh, is Tamil, uh, but there's also uh, Telugu is another one, I believe. And uh, my bet and guess, based on, again, everything we know, is that the people living in this region at this time frame are probably speaking, if not Dravidian, or obviously Dravidian has broken apart, uh, that happens later, but this proto-Dravidic, or like a Dravidic precursor, uh, they're probably speaking a cousin uh, of Dravidic or Proto-Dravidic if they're not speaking the Proto-Dravidic themselves um and again we'll get into why I believe this is the case a lot later um but that that's kind of that I fall well into that kind of um, side of things and uh yeah I think that's kind of a good place to stop from now um little little short uh 20 23 minute episode here but yeah i'd like to thank you all for listening um if you have any feedback please let me know uh you can reach me of course at war at gmail.com you can also reach me via direct message on uh, twitter or you can comment on any of our youtube videos that i've been uploading our backlog to i've got uh, right now three more set to go up this week um the aceramic cypress episode really kicked off um and we've picked up a uh i think seven or eight new subscribers in the last week or so so uh that's that's been good uh, we're, we're getting uh, getting a little bit more popular and uh, getting a lot more listens so I do want to thank you all for continuing to listen and uh, I hope you all continue to do so and that you have enjoyed uh, the podcast so uh, again please feel free feedback constructive criticism whatever uh, you'd like uh, to send me I am always willing to listen and try to learn and uh, I guess refine my process in the show here. So uh, thank you all. I hope you have a good rest of your day and a good rest of your week. Until the next time, thank you all. Goodbye.